0: Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pod of thunder and rock and roll and home of the illustrious and much-anticipated Duff McKagan joke of the week. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling you. Uh, Listen, this is going to be a swear word alert for uh, you with the small kids around. Um, You know, uh, life is like toilet paper. You're either on a roll or you're taking shit from some asshole. Thank you very much. Goodbye. (laughs) That was a good one duff delivers as usual <laughs> hopefully that didn't put him on santa's naughty list but he did give us a warning about the uh, swear word content of that joke but if you want to play santa and you're looking for great gift ideas cabins are available for chris jericho's rock and rusty rager at Sea 4 leaf clover we are setting sail march 14th from miami to nassau give the vacation of a lifetime even if it's to yourself book your cabin now at chrisjerichocruise.com and come join an amazing lineup of talent and special guests all Elite Wrestling will be there. The guest of honor is Mark Henry. The guest cruise director is Mickey James. She's also going to be playing uh, some of her country music. Guest hosts Gallows and Anderson are insane. They'll be doing Talk and Shop Live. Director of Laughs, Brad Williams. We've also got King Haku, Brutus Beefcake, Mike Rotunda. How about Mick Foley is making his return. Nick Aldis, Moose, the Impact Wrestling Champion, Jordan Gray, Swoggle, Dan Lambert, his unbelievable collection of title belts from, uh, from around the world. I'm Matt Cardone and Brian Myers doing a live podcast. Shaul Guerrero and the Vaudettes. Fozzie, Quiet Riot, Royal Bliss, Raven, the new wave of British heavy metal, Pioneers, Press, the world's greatest Kiss female cover band, Gutter Canning featuring Frankie Kazarian, Quarantine, probably the best lineup yet. So many more. Go to ChrisJerichoCruise.com to see the entire lineup. So join the fun at ChrisJerichoCruise.com. You don't want to miss the vacation of a lifetime. All right. On a more serious note, I've got private investigator and forensic psychology practitioner Laura Brand is on the show today. She's also the executive producer of the Toolbox Killer documentary that's streaming on Peacock right now. It's a horrific true crime story about a couple of sadistic serial killers, Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris, who terrorized and killed uh, teenage girls in Southern California over a five-month period in 1979 documentary is basically a real-life version of the Silence of the Lambs, uh, Bittaker being Hannibal Lecter and Laura Brand being Clarice. Uh, Laura built up a relationship with Lawrence Bittaker over the years and eventually got him to share details of his and Norris's horrific crimes, including the possible location of a couple of their victims who re- whose remains have been undiscovered for all these years. You'll, you're going to hear why uh, she got involved in this case. Some of the horrific details of the killer's various murders, some that you don't even see in the documentary, how and when they were finally caught, and how Laura managed to get Bittaker to open up to her. It's one of the most disturbing and gruesome serial killer cases I've ever heard. And after you hear what Laura has to say about it, you'll definitely want to check out the documentary on Peacock as well. So let's get started. It's the gruesome, terrible story of the toolbox killers with Laura Brand here on Talk is Jericho. always looking for cool subjects and guests and actually a friend of mine said you have to check out the toolbox killer so i went and checked it out and then i did what everyone does nowadays contact somebody via social media and i have laura brand here Today on Talk is Jericho, and what a what an well, I don't even know if amazing is the story, but what a deep and heavy and so many emotions for this whole story that you were involved in for a, a huge part of, of, of this and a huge part of your life, I imagine.
1: Yeah, five years they are going on six years now. Oh, gosh, yeah, <laughs> it's a roller coaster.
0: Yeah, it's, it is a roller coaster of emotions. That's the best way of putting it and talking, of course, about, about the Toolbox Killer. And I guess the first question to get into this, how did you end up getting so close to the topic and to the subject of being around Lawrence Bittaker so personally?
1: You know, um, he was my most challenging one, which I talked about on the show, but it took three years to really break him down and get him to actually start speaking to me and <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to get him on the phone and actually really interviewing him like Um, But once I got there with him, you know, he just was damn breaking and everything just came out. That's when he gave me the buried evidence uh, where the two locations of Cindy and Andrea are. And then um, he also gave me, he gave me everything on the case. So he gave me the police discovery, the court transcripts. He listed me as next uh, to kin in the will. He wanted me to go on and finish the case.
0: Well, let, let's let's start before that. So, you are an FBI investigator, or what no, exactly? No, no, no,
1: not yeah. an FBI. <laughs> yeah. No, um, I work as a PI by, uh, by trade. Um, criminologist listed on the show, and I'm working on a collective study of serial killers right now. So, my degree is in forensic psychology.
0: Gotcha. So, let's talk a little bit, just just briefly, what the toolbox killers are and what what, what they did.
1: So um, Lawrence Spittaker and Roy Norris were um, active in 1979 in Los Angeles County. So they bought a van. So this urban legend of where the van comes from is actually from their case. Uh, they actually like tricked out this van just for murder. So they put a bed in, they put a toolbox under the bed to torture the victims. That's where their moniker comes from. But they soundproofed the van. They put in CV radios, police scanners, everything you can imagine just to have it tricked out for the sole purpose of rape, torture and murder. Um, and they abducted, Five, there's actually more victims, but five girls they were convicted of, and they would bring them up to San Gabriel mountains and uh, torture them, rape them, and eventually kill them up there.
0: You mentioned as being a PI and kind of investigating this, the bodies of some of these girls were never found. Is that kind of what attracted you in the first place to try and find out some answers on this or?
1: Yeah. When I found out, you know, he had uh, two missing girls that were never found, that it definitely stuck out to me. And I really wanted to get the closure for the families. And it was even before um, I talked to Julie, you see Julie on the show. She's one of the missing uh, victims sister. Even before I contacted her, I was saying to him, I was like, do these girls have families? Do they have siblings? Are they still looking for them? And he was just like, yeah, they have families. I don't know. I don't think they're, you know, it's 40 years later. Mm. But so, you know, when I finally called her 40 years later and I said, I know where your sister is. And she goes, she was murdered. And I go, no, I know where her body is. And we both just started flooding with tears. Like she was just crying. I was crying. And she was like, you know, we've never ever given up hope of like bring her home and just having a funeral to bury her.
0: Cause that would be almost, I mean, and we'll get into just how sadistic and and terrible these murders are, but even worse of just the, like you mentioned, the non-closure of never finding the, the bodies. Yeah and these guys knew where the bodies were buried, but just didn't want to tell anybody. Is that part of their sadism or?
1: <laughs> What's weird is Norris turned state witness against Fittaker. And he was the one who went up in the mountains to tell where the bodies were. The reason why Andrea was missed was because Norris was not there when she was killed. He just saw him and, Bitteker walking Andrea up a road. So he was just, I don't even know why he was pointing to an area. The area he gave is so way off from where actually Bitteker actually took her and where the investigators actually searched for Andrea. Now with Cindy, he was there when they killed Cindy and they both threw her off the cliff. But when I went back to look at the maps along with Bittaker. You know, Bittaker was the one who went up on those roads at 16. He knew he knew those roads. You know, Norris was new to them, so when Bittaker is looking at the road, he's like where Norris is pointing. He's like she's about a mile off from where Cindy actually is. So those were the two mistakes that happened with the two girls not being found back in 1981.
0: So let's talk about these two guys a little bit of their their, kind of their background. So it seems like they're almost like, were they both criminals on their own and then kind of connected to become like this dynamic duo of death, I guess you'd say.
1: Yeah. Gruesome twosome pretty much, but yeah, pretty much. uh, Norris was a serial rapist and I mean like a serial rapist. I mean, I have a writing from him he gave me and I mean, it was just like he was always hunting and trolling. I mean, probably, 80% 80% of the rapes he committed weren't even um, ever documented. No, none of the girls went to the police. So he was getting away with rape too, but also getting um, you know, arrested and going in and out of jail for rape. With Bittaker, his uh, you know criminal history is all over the map. A ton of breaking entering, a ton of grand theft auto, just all over the place, like every single type of uh, criminal behavior you can imagine. But he only committed one um, violent crime and it was right before he went to prison with Norris and he stabbed a clerk about a centimeter from his heart. He was actually aiming for the heart he missed. It was a miracle the guy survived. But um, it was then they ended up in San Luis Obispo and they met and they would sit around and it wasn't even just Bittiger and Norris. There was actually a group of them and they would sit around and write out deviant sexual fantasies and just talk about these deviant sexual fantasies they wanted to do. They would talk about the cabin in the woods and the trailer and getting a van and like all the different ways they would do it and what how they would torture the girls, how they would rape the girls. I mean, it was like this posse of sexually deviants in the prison
0: and then they decided to actually go do these things yes it's really interesting to me when when you know you talk about this time frame you said this is kind of the late 70s of 77 78 79 at the same time there's bundy is going on and and richard ramirez is going on and and gacy's not too far off what is it about this time frame where all of these guys are doing these terrible things
1: it really is like this huge wave in the '70s. Right, in Los Angeles was so heavy with it. When I talked to investigators out in Los Angeles, like we'll be comparing different serial killers and M.O.s because you kind of have to when you're looking at Jane Doe's or missing persons, you're like, well, this one could be that for that one, and this one could be for that one, that one, that one. Because you know, you had uh, Romney Alcala, Bittker Norris, the Hillside Stranglers, Richard Ramirez, like you said. I mean, was uh, Clark, Sunset Slayer. They're all in Los Angeles counties. I mean, it was like a hub for serial killers at that time.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's so insane because we don't really have that anymore, at least as far as we hear. The the kind of this era, I mean, it's, it sounds pretty macabre, but the the golden era of of the <laughs> serial killer is kind of in this time frame, right?
1: Yeah, it is true. Seventies was the golden era of serial killers. Now, you know, they're not prevalent in the cities anymore you know there's a lot of cameras with everything being recorded to stop that right but don't forget you know there's mountain terrain national parks i mean anywhere you have desolate area this is where they're going i can't tell you how many serial killers i talk to and um they talk about going deep in the woods uh they rent a lot of the lumber lumberyard companies the big thing i hear is always going deep into the mountains in the woods for these guys especially uh sexual status it's
0: a more remote And out of the way, the better, right? Yeah. So how did you get in contact with with Bitteker in the first place?
1: You know, I wrote him and I got a letter back right away saying, I don't want to talk to you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And this went on for about a couple months. And then I actually just showed up at the prison. Now to get into San Quentin, the offender has to sign off on you coming. Not only that, if you show up on that day, they can actually say, no, I'm not coming down. I don't want to speak to you. Bitteker, of course, never sent me a visiting form. I actually had to finagle it with another serial killer on San Quentin's death row. He got a visiting form because he was friends with Bitteker. So he got his signature on the visiting form, sent it to me. I filled it out, sent it back in, got approved, and I just showed up. And I was scared he wasn't even going to come down from his cell. And he just came down and um, I went down a couple more days and he kept coming down to talk to me. And, uh, that's how I really started to build the relationship because I kept just showing up right there and he'd come down every time.
0: <laughs> Unbelievable. Right. Yeah. No, th- the fact that he writes you back to say, I don't want to talk to you <laughs> kind of tells me that there was a little bit inside of him that did want to talk to you. Right.
1: Well, yeah. Cause you think like he's writing, he's like, I don't want to talk to you. You know, I don't want to call you. I don't want to write back to you. I don't want to help you with your collective study. Cause that was the main reason for me writing is can you do this survey? He's like, no. So you would think once I showed up at the prison, he wouldn't want to come down. And I was shocked when I saw them bring him right down. <laughs> I was like, he's going to deny me.
0: <laughs> what exactly is the collective study that you were working on?
1: So it has it's 25 serial offenders. I'm still working on it. I just partnered with uh, Dr. John White to analyze the findings of it. We're presenting on it in April. So it should be done about the end of this year. And I'll send you a copy if you want to see it. It's pretty interesting.
0: I'd love to see it. But what is it? Is it kind of like a personality personality traits
1: yeah so i asked like really really deep like philosophical questions to serial killers and we also want to measure them against regular people's answers see you know how different they are and measure the different personality traits within the study
0: it's almost like what clarice starling does to to Lecter, where she wants them to fill out the questions in the surveys right
1: yeah It's like pulling teeth
0: with them. I swear though. (laughs) Well, I'm sure it is because once again, I mean, and and we haven't even scratched the surface of what these guys even did, but how is it to talk to this guy? I'm not going to say you became friends with him, but there's, or maybe you did, there's a relationship there, but deep down inside, you know, that this is the same guy that raped a 16 year old girl with a pair of pliers.
1: Yeah.
0: How do you justify the end of the means? Is it all kind of part of the process?
1: Yeah, I mean, you're going to go through a wave of emotions and a roller coaster. And um, I always go in non-judgmental. I'm like, get the crimes out of your head. You're here to do, you know, work and a study. And, you know, and then I do try to build authentic relationships on the experience I have with them. I try not to focus on their crimes, you know? So you and me are having a conversation right now, you know, I'm basing our experience off of that. So that's what I keep trying to do every time I go in there is uh, base it off my experience going in, what I'm seeing, what I'm feeling. You know, there were times like Bideker and I would just sit in the cage and he'd be telling me his life story. We'd be bawling. He'd tell me of the crimes. I'd start crying because it was so much. But once you build that like relationship with somebody, you know, you're allowed to express those emotions, even in the prison. And, you know, they do back and forth with me too. And it really does build like a solid bond between you. I mean, you're really diving into the deepest form of, you know, human nature there is. It's really interesting
0: that you say that, like you can only treat people the way they treat you. And like you said, you have to compartmentalize the crime in order to get the information that you're looking for. Because if you don't, it's almost like he's not going to trust you enough to open up. Right.
1: Right. Well, you know, everyone's like, how do you go into the prisons and sit across from them and not want to kill them? or like tell them off. And I'm like, you think if I went into a prison and told them off or said something, you think they are going to want to talk to me anymore? Like, no, it'll be done. (laughs) You know, you have Mm -hmm. to become a master interviewer and you have to, you know, you can't go in there punching them in the face or (laughs) telling them off, you know, you're not going to get anywhere. You have to build a relationship. You have to build a trust. You have to build a rapport. It's really simple. If you want to, you know, work towards getting information such as body placements and buried evidence (laughs) and everything.
0: Do you think that there is a connection there because you are a pretty girl that might like, obviously these girls that he's killing are all young, blonde. I mean, there's different types, but they're all very pretty girls as well in a lot of ways. Right.
1: Yeah, everyone pointed that out. You know, I'm blonde, blue eyed, which is like their victimology type. I would say, you know, it might help. I think it actually works to my benefit when I go into the prisons, just because it's more unassuming. I'm not coming in there as like an authoritative figure, like FBI or law enforcement. You know, I'm a young young girl and I'm a PI and it's, it's very like, I'm very unassuming uh, in that kind of sense. I'm not threatening to them. I'm not buttoned up in that way.
0: Thanks to the Skylight Frame for supporting Talk is Jericho. We got my dad a Skylight Frame last Christmas and he loves it. It's actually been a hit with the whole family. The Skylight is a touchscreen photo frame that you can email pictures to and they appear on the frame in seconds. My kids love surprising my dad with pictures. He loves how the photos just show up like magic on the frame. We've been doing it all year long. We gave the frame to my dad because he couldn't travel at the time. Uh, to come see the grandkids because of the pandemic. He's in Canada. They've been under a pretty uh, strict lockdown for for a while. He's been down to see us a few times since, which has been great. But the Skylight Frame lets them see what we've been up to. It's just another way for all of us to stay connected uh, during a pandemic or, or, or not. You want to stay connected to your family as much as you possibly can. It's very easy to use. The setup takes less than 60 seconds, and you don't need to be a tech genius to figure it out. It looks like a real photo frame, has an awesome 10-inch touchscreen, and you can swipe through photos with your finger and even tap to thank the person who sent the photo. If you don't love your Skylight, they'll give you a full refund, 100% satisfaction guaranteed. You can also preload the Skylight with photos before you give it to the grandparents or whoever, and then you can surprise them all year long by emailing new photos to the Skylight anytime from anywhere and right now you can get $10 off your purchase of a skylight frame when you go to skylightframe.com use my promo code jericho just go to skylightframe.com use my promo code jericho to get 10 bucks off the purchase of a skylight frame once again it's s-k-y-l-i-g-h-t-f-r-a-m-e.com use the promo code jericho and stay connected in the most visual way possible all right, before we get back to Laura Brand, I also want to let everyone know that my second NFT is out. The second installment of the Painmaker NFT. Uh, this new NFT picks up right where the first left off, explains why the Painmaker spikes burst out of his jacket, and why the fire flamed out of his eyes in the initial episode was sold out. Uh, For part two, the reason why those things happen is because it's bad news for the Painmaker as he's preparing to battle his nemesis, the intergalactic serial killer, Arachdemonos. This will be the second of a series of NFTs, with each subsequent piece revealing more of the Painmaker's story leading up to the very first ever Painmaker NFT graphic novel. Just go to semcor.io slash death at first sting. That's semcor, S-E-M-K-H-O-R dot io death at first thing to check out this exclusive and amazing brand new painmaker nft so you mentioned that there was five women that that they were they were convicted of murdering and there was more victims but kind of let's go through some of these things that they that they did so because i i think it's very important to discuss that because it is as as i believe just reading through, one dude actually said he was the most violent serial killer ever. Uh, that's it. D- John Douglas, the most disturbing individual who, for whom he's ever created a criminal profile was, was Lawrence Bittaker. Yeah. Just kind of showing you what they're dealing with there.
1: Yeah. There was a lot of the torture that was left out on the show. I don't know if you want me to go into the extent
0: of the torture. Well, I mean, I'd I'd like to hear some of it because the thing about it too is, is and and the show is called The Toolbox Killers, but the one that really got to me uh, and that we'll never hear and I don't want to hear it and we'll get to it is is Shirley Bedford. What's her last name?
1: Ledford, yeah. Ledford, right. Mm -hmm.
0: The tape of her screams are so violent and so horrible that they can't be played and shouldn't be played. I'm assuming you probably have heard them, but...
1: I haven't. Well, I've heard 30 seconds and I can tell you from just the 30 seconds I've heard, um, it felt like something was reaching inside of me and squeezing my insides. Like, that's what it felt like. And that's just 30 seconds. I can't imagine listening to the entire tape.
0: And it's hours, right?
1: No, it's, it's not. It's only like 17 oh. minutes. It's not that long. But, you know, um, the lead investigator killed himself over the case. A lot of that trauma came from the tape. People in the lawyers in the courtroom had to actually go on mental health leave and check themselves into institutions for three months. Some of the detectives actually, you know, turned to alcohol. So, I mean, there's a lot of uh, effects that have happened from hearing the tape. And Stephen Kay has asked me, he's like, please don't ever listen to the tape. It's that damaging psychologically? And I can tell you from the 30 seconds, it's no joke.
0: It's basically just the most horrific of screams from, from a 16-year-old girl. I have two 15-year-old daughters and it just, it really, I felt the same as you. Yeah. Just the, the crunching of the insides and just going, how the f*** can somebody do this to somebody and who, no one deserves this. And it's just such a terrible thought just to even see it on, on the screen and what we saw.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, there's a reason why, you know, you see the jurors, people in the courtroom leaving, people were throwing up. And getting sick. And there's actually a father. You see, they didn't show it on the show, but there is the courtroom footage of more people walking out. And they had one guy, and he's a father, and he's walking out, he's shaking his head, and he has to go over to the corner just to cool himself off. And a reporter goes up to him and he goes, I have a daughter. And like he's like, all I could see was her face when I'm listening to these tapes. Um, but if you see like the full tape of everybody walking out, it's it's like whoa. I mean, people were just running out of that courtroom.
0: So what were some of the things that these guys would do to these poor girls?
1: Okay, well here we go. It's pretty rough, so I'm just going to give everybody a heads up because a lot was not on the show, and it is disturbing, very disturbing. You know, the pliers were used for ripping off the nipples and the clitorises. They were sodomized with flashlights, screwdrivers. They stuck the ice picks not only through the ears, but also through the human breasts. This is all anti-mortem, by the way. They used pliers to rip out the molars of the girls' These, you know, knives, they cut Lynette, like poked her with the knife on her abdomen, a lot of beating with the fist around the face, around the chest, but uh, the coat hangers around the necks that they would use the pliers to tighten with, pretty much, you know, if you look at a toolbox, oh, hammers too, they used hammers, the sledgehammer on Lynette's, they hit Lynette on the elbow 25 times with a sledgehammer, they killed Leah with that sledgehammer, But yeah, so just open a toolbox and look at the tools. And I mean, they use every single one, pretty much. I mean, for the torture.
0: And just to clarify, anti-mortem means before they died. Before
1: they died. So all of this was they were, the girls were alive, completely alive. Even the ice pick going into the ears, that does not kill you right away. So, I mean, they were still alive even for that. And they were alive for when it was taken out and placed in the second year, too.
0: And you even, one of the bodies that you found had the ice pick still in the skull years later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Once again, just horrific, the most terrible of nightmares that you can think of. But when you or they were confronted about this, it was constant denial. Oh, she's not screaming because we are ripping off her nipples with pliers. She's screaming because she's enjoying the sex that we're having or whatever the hell he said.
1: Yeah. That's where you see his... um. For me, when I listen to his tapes of saying like he's downplaying everything, and especially with the screams, oh, the screams were because I was just gently hitting here to scream. You know, this is where I'm looking his psychopathy of everything. And when he says it's very telling when he goes a loving type of porn, because in his mind, his wires are so crossed. His sadism is so intertwined with what he thinks love is, that the torture is actually in his mind what love is.
0: Wow. So you're talking specifically with Bittiker and Norris's partner was still alive at this time yes. as well, right? Did you ever speak to him?
1: I did. I Norris was very receptive of me from the beginning. Now, him and I had a falling out Right before they both died, right after Biddicker had given me where the bodies were, where the evidence was. And I had tracked down, you know, a survivor. I tracked down Stephen Kay. I told Kay, I'm like, he gave up all this information. So I started going into the case, going down the rabbit hole and starting to reinvestigate everything. And then Bitteker gave me the police discovery. So I had called Norris up and um, I had said, you know, I have the police discovery. I'm going through the entire case and tracking down everybody again. And Bitteker gave up the information. So I'm going to investigate the case and I'm also going to write a book about it. And he heard book and he freaked out because, you know, he he was actually up for parole. And in his mind, he actually thought he was going to get out on parole, as crazy as it sounds. Jeez. So he didn't want any publicity or anything about the case coming out. So I said, when I said I'm going to write a book, he was like, I don't consent. And I always keep my cool with the serial killers. I never, ever lose my cool. But it was the one time I lost my cool when I heard him say the word consent. (laughs) I was like, well, your victim's didn't consent. Guess what? It's still happening. Mm -hmm. You know, we hung up. And that was the last time we spoke. But we'd spoken for the five uh, previous years. You know, with Norris, it was weird because, again, he thought he was going to get out on parole his story actually like backtracks. So now he's in the courtroom in 1981 testifying. He's talking about what color the girl's underwear was. He's giving these intimate details of the murder step-by-step in that courtroom. And I have the trial transcripts reading it all. And he's on the phone saying, I don't know. I was blacked out on drugs during the crimes. I woke up and they were dead. Hmm. His story backtracks from, you know, 1981. So that's a big reason I didn't focus much in on Norris because, you know, he thought I have a chance to get out. I have a chance to go parole. And he thought if he, you know, blamed it on drugs, maybe that would give him a better chance of getting out.
0: Did he kind of turn on Bitteker as well? He mentioned.
1: He did. Yeah. He turned state witness against Bitteker.
0: So what exactly does that mean?
1: So he got saved from the death penalty. So he was given a sentence. That came up with parole. I think it was like a life sentence with chance of parole, but he would um, escape the death penalty. But he had to testify against Bitteker, as well as bring them up to the mountains to show them where the bodies are. So he led them to uh, Jackie Gilliam and Leah Lamb.
0: And what was Bitteker's feelings and response to you about that?
1: With Norris?
0: Yeah, about the fact that Norris turned on. You
1: know, he up until his death, he was upset about it like salty about it. They had a very, like, I don't even know how to describe their relationship. A lot of people, you know, call it like soulmates. I mean, it is probably like the sickest soulmate type of relationship you could ever like imagine. Mm-hmm. They, there's also a lot of talk about them having a sexual relationship as well. Oh wow. Yeah. Bitteker was bisexual. He was very open about being bisexual and he would say to me all the time, I have it on a couple recordings recordings. He's actually had more sex with men than women. So there's a lot of talk about, you know, the two of them, (laughs) right? But he was salty up until, you know, before he died about Norris turning on him, but it was like his best friend kind of like betrayed him. It's weird. Even after the trial and after Norris turned on Bitteker, they wrote to each other for years. They kept writing to one another. Finally, the prison stopped it and they stopped writing, but both of them threw a huge fit to uh, prison officials because they were forced to stop writing to one another.
0: Thanks to NordVPN for supporting Talk is Jericho and for keeping my data and privacy protected from hackers. You guys know that I travel a lot. Uh, I'm always on the road with AW and Fozzie and I have to use unsecure airport or hotel Wi-Fi constantly. And public Wi-Fi is notorious for being a hotbed for hackers to steal data. But I use NordVPN on my phone and my laptop as it protects me from hackers and gives me the peace of mind I need when I'm on the road. If you're wondering about that uh, whole VPN slows down your internet speed thing I've been hearing about, uh, it doesn't happen with NordVPN because it's the fastest VPN in the world. I don't have to sacrifice internet speed for better security. With NordVPN, my internet traffic is routed through a secure encrypted tunnel, which protects my data and privacy, and you can have NordVPN up on up to six devices, including a computer, phone, smart TV, tablet, and even your router. You can stream movies and TV shows online with no bandwidth throttling, and you can connect in just a single click. If you're a gamer and a game isn't available in your country, not a problem with NordVPN, just change your virtual location and unlock your favorite games. And NordVPN has a great holiday season deal happening right now. Just go to nordvpn.com T-I-J or use the code T-I-J to get up to 73% off your NordVPN plan plus a bonus gift. That's the equivalent of buying a cup of coffee every month, a small price to pay for premium cybersecurity and access to vast amounts of entertaining content. There's also a 30-day money-back guarantee if NordVPN is not for you. It's totally risk-free. Just go to NordVPN.com slash TIJ or use the promo code TIJ to get up to 73% off your NordVPN plan plus a bonus gift. That's NordVPN.com slash TIJ or use the promo code TIJ. Do you think that has something to do with their treatment of these women? The fact that if they did have some kind of a sexual relationship, I'm I'm thinking almost to, this is so ridiculous, but ancient Greeks to where women were just there to procreate and they weren't there to really love and they weren't really actual people with feelings, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Do you think that had something to do with it? Maybe why they treated these women this way?
1: Yeah, for sure. And I also think them talking and, you know, they're reliving everything they would love to relive everything. I mean, they were taking the Polaroids, the, you know, the audio cassette tapes of the crimes, and then, you know, they're talking about it nonstop. So, you know, it's a way for them to keep reliving this uh, high of these acts.
0: It's almost their glory days, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, and then even when I was visiting Bitteker and talking to Norris, I mean, we had no even small talk. It was always about, you know, their crimes, you know, childhood, but even like, I would just try to be like, sorry, if you read any good books, just try to like, you know, after like a really heavy conversation, it was like, they didn't even want to even talk about anything else, but the crime, hmm. you know, their past and everything. It was like, they just wanted to stay in that space of rape and murder all the time.
0: And that, you think it was that only with you? Or were you like the one person that they would talk to, or they were doing that with everybody?
1: Well, I found out, I guess they had never, Bitaker had um, always said he was innocent. He had always blamed Norris. And you see Mary O'Toole in the special. She's an FBI profiler. Yes. Uh, she worked with John Douglas, who you just read the quote from. You know, when she was in there, he was saying to her, he was like, I don't know what you're talking about. It was Norris. Everything was Norris. So he held on to this story that it was all Norris for 40 years. You no, know, with me, it was just like, I'm not even sure. Yeah, that's when he switched and he's like, he took he took full responsibility of the crimes, like full accountability. He'll downplay, you know, um, the accounts of, you know, Lynette screaming, that it was more casual or anything. But he, you know, he finally started saying, Listen, yeah, Laura, it was my idea to get in the van. It was my idea to do these crimes. So a damn broke and he finally, after 40 years, <laughs> started talking about the crimes.
0: Hmm. Finally was coming clean, right? Maybe it's just because this is towards the end of his life or what, what was the reason?
1: I don't know. I don't know. I think a lot of it was my persistence. Here's a girl who's he's saying, don't write me. And I'm flying 3000 miles to show up at San Quentin. But he used to always talk about that because he knew I had a love for Nancy Drew and he would always say Nancy Drew.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was a big Hardy Boys guy when I was a kid. Oh, no
1: way. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that was like a big thing about it was, you know, I just kept showing up and showing up and I was so persistent. And I think I just wore him down. But the last few interviews, you know, I had three months. He could call me, goes, I have cancer. So we had three months right before he died of cancer. And the production company flew me out for three weeks i spent the last three weeks with him right before death after he found out he had cancer he was dying i mean everything amped up times like a thousand i mean those last interviews those last three weeks you know he was ready to talk about everything and he was just like a mess you know he he knew he was dying he knew it
0: yeah there's he starts crying and says what have i done and all those sort of things that you see on the on the show let's kind of go back to the 70s here how long did these crimes go was it the course of a year two years
1: it was all 79. Yeah. So uh, Bittaker got paroled. It was um, late 78. And then Norris got out January of 79. Norris actually went to Colorado and raped a woman one month after he was out on parole in Colorado. Wow. Yeah, just one month. <laughs> and he came back and, you know, that's when they got the band started going up the mountains and hunting. But yeah, it was the course of the whole year of 79.
0: Yeah, I was, just, I was looking at some research here, and actually it says it started in June, and Halloween might have been the last one, and they were apprehended in November. So all of this kind of happened over a six-month period, which is pretty rare for serial killers as well. Usually it goes over the course of time, but these guys were just on a killing spree.
1: Yeah, they were, they were on a killing spree. I mean, they were hunting every single week, trolling and hunting. For girls. There were a lot of failed attempts too. There was a uh, Jan Mallon got maced in the face with some chemicals and they tried to drag her in the van. She was like three feet from the van and her screams, the neighbors came out. She was saved. Oh, wow. They, yeah. So I talked to her. Her story is unbelievable. Uh, Kristen, who was uh, interviewed for the show, but she didn't make it in the show. You can actually go on NBC.com and there's a clip of her talking, her experience. Norris actually picked her up hitchhiking. She was going to a graduation He pulled behind the school and said, I'm going to rape you and started choking her. And she was almost unconscious, but somebody walked by the car and Norris sat back up, pretended like he was just sitting there. And she was able to jump out of a half open window, but she left her purse in the car and her purse had keys to her house and said, if lost, return to Kristen messenger with her address. Oh my gosh. I know Norris called Bitteker and said, you know, this girl just saw my face. She just escaped and Bitteker goes, okay, we're going to go to her house and kill her by a miracle. They do go to the house to kill her, but she lived on Prospect Street in Redondo Beach and there's a North and South and they went to the wrong one and the house was vacant with a for sale sign. So they thought it was, you know, she was no longer a threat. She was literally saved twice in one day. I mean, some of these girls' stories are just incredible. They went to college campuses too. They tried, there was three failed abductions on his birthday. He was trying to get himself a birthday present, he called it.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah, literally a spree. I mean, they were hunting like nonstop.
0: There's one girl on the show who, same thing, but she actually had a kind of a relationship with, with was it with uh, Norris?
1: Yeah, uh, Bitteker. Bitteker.
0: Tell us about her story. It was very interesting as well.
1: So Tracy was 19, living at the Scott Motel, and she was living in room 10, and Bittaker lived in room 11. So right next door, like she talks about, she had called her parents to come home, and uh, they said pretty much, no, you're on your own, and she's pregnant. What's so weird, and they point this out in the show, is, here's Tracy pretty much alone and pregnant and, you know, broke right before 2018, when he gave up the bodies and the buried evidence, I was living with a guy, my boyfriend who I was madly in love with. He had, I gotten pregnant. He had kicked me out, told me to get an abortion. Um, I had lost my job because the company just went bankrupt. So here I am, I'm homeless, jobless, you know, pregnant and alone, kind of the same circumstances that Tracy was in 1979, ironically. wow. And uh, my ex had said to me, he was like, you know, if you have that baby, you'll never go on to be a criminologist. You'll never go on to write a book or your dreams will never come to fruition if you have a kid. So it kind of put like the fear of God into me. And I had $1,500 to my name and I said, screw it. You know, I'm going to go for my dreams one last time. I'm going to try at least. So I used that $1,500 to fly to San Quentin you know, for a duration of six weeks to interview these guys. Wow. I was seven and a half months pregnant, like literally bopping on <laughs> death row, you know? And I was like, you know, I just got to do these interviews and do something with my life. You know, I have a kid on the way and now I'm about to be broke, like dead broke <laughs> from spending the money to do this. But thank God it, it all played out so perfectly because it was me being seven and a half months pregnant, I think triggered, you know, his mother issues. And just like Tracy, who was pregnant back then, I think that was a big factor into why he actually gave the bodies and the buried evidence at that time.
0: And in Tracy's case, he basically d- drove her around and, and kind of threatened her a few times, but basically it was almost like she was his girlfriend or something.
1: Yeah. I wouldn't say girlfriend.
0: Companion.
1: Like, yeah. It's weird because I saw, I tracked down all the girls from the, the motel who used to hang out there. There's uh, Dina and Tina. They are not in the special. There was a lot of girls who were like, just hanging around that motel, and he was making the equivalent to over $400,000 current time.
0: How? What was he doing?
1: He was a very skilled aircraft mechanic. So I looked up, I think it's like four hundred thirty-eight thousand dollars was what he was making equivalent to today. So, I mean, he had money and um, he was buying the girls liquor, booze, Tracy, you know, maternity clothes, a place to stay. I mean, he was constantly, you know, uh, paying for these girls and giving them And if they ever needed a ride. You know, he's always giving them rides. So, I mean, that's kind of like why they were all hanging out there. And I bet, even asked him, I said, you were hanging out with all these teenagers. You know, why didn't you kill any of them? And I asked him just to point out and he said, you know, well, they knew me. It would track back to me if I killed any of them. And I said, is there anyone that you would, if you could have killed, that you would have killed? And he said, Dina. Dina wasn't on the show, but she was um, like his favorite. He had approached her at a park in Burbank with Norris and said, we're model scouts. We want to take your picture. You know, we want to get you into modeling. And that that was a ruse that he used a lot. And um, her friend Tina had come along and said, he's staying at the Scott Motel, something weird is going on over there. They're always having people over to drink and party. So her friend Tina actually started going over there with her. She didn't want her going alone. She always got a bad feeling about these guys. Mm-hmm. And you got to remember Bitteker is 38 hanging out with, you know, 14 year olds. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. very strange. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and let's be honest too, pretty creepy looking guy. Like he didn't have the Bundy thing where he was kind of an attractive guy. He's just weird, greasy hair, bad mustache, you know? Right. And that's the thing that I was thinking about because he did just have this reputation of just hanging out with all these kids. Yeah. And also too, they talk about, you guys talk about how they were taking a lot of pictures of girls just all around. Were those pictures, of were they, were they future potential victims or did they just like having pictures of all these girls?
1: I think both, you know, I'm sure they used them for sexual reasons, you know, I think they also got off on taking pictures of unsuspecting girls, you know, girls having no idea they were getting their picture taken and being stalked. I think that got them off too. And yeah, I think these were potential next victims for them. When they finally uh, started trailing Norris, Norris had brought Joe Jackson, who you see in the show, he's the one who turned them in. Norris had brought Joe Jackson to eight different places of the next eight potential victims. Now Bitteker had already bought chemicals. They were going to burn out the eye sockets and the eardrums, the ears, but the chemicals in the eyes and the ears of the next victims. They were already planning on this. They were also planning on putting chemicals into squirt guns and giving them to kids on the beach and watching the kids mean each other and people on the beach. And they would sit back and laugh. You're kidding me. No. So this was the next plan of what they had planned to do next. Um, and it was already in the works. So Roy brings Jackson to these eight different residents of the next victims. You had an airline attendant who was watching from the coming back from the airport, her routine. He was watching a girl at a footlocker. He was watching a girl who worked at a beauty store. He was watching a 13 year old girl trying to figure out when her dad wasn't around. But yeah, they already had, they were already stalking eight next victims.
0: And they, and he told you this, Bitterker told you this?
1: Yeah. This is all in the police files too.
0: So they were going to take some sort of acid or whatever and burn the eyes and the ears of a victim. Yes.
1: Yes.
0: So you couldn't see, you couldn't hear, and you'd still be trapped. Yes. That's terrible. I know.
1: It's like you, horror movie stuff, horror movies,
0: Absolutely. Beyond. Yeah. Trade pros. Ferguson is committed to making business with us the easiest part of your day. Ferguson.com is designed to help run your business from the office to the job site by making your
1: day-to-day activities easier with 24-7 account access, unmatched online inventory, and on-the-go account management. And with our Pro Plus Customer Loyalty Program, you can earn points with every online purchase, redeemable for merchandise, event
0: tickets, trips, and more. Sign up today at Ferguson.com. So you mentioned it briefly, but just to explain for people who haven't seen, how did they finally get caught?
1: So how they finally got caught is they were hanging out with another guy from their prison that they, you know, met up in. And he was also a serial rapist. They had met up one morning and, you know, he had gone around with Bittaker and Norris taking pictures of unsuspecting girls. And there was another uh, failed rape attempt with him and Norris during this, the duration of 1979. Norris had met up with him and finally confessed, you know, him and Bitaker had been taking girls up to the mountains to actually not only rape them, but kill them as well. And asked him if he wanted to get in on it. And that's when Jackson actually went to the police and actually said, listen, they're taking girls up in the mountains and killing them. And the cops were kind of like, at first the cops did not take him seriously. They were like, where are the bodies? And he's like, I have no idea. But it was Paul Bynum, the lead detective who killed himself, who actually finally took Jackson seriously because he had remembered a girl who had uh, just reported a rape of two guys' silver van in Hermosa Beach.
0: That they had raped her?
1: Yes, yes.
0: So how did she escape?
1: She was more like she was just um, partying at the beach. Oh. Yeah, she was kind of like already partying with them, and then um, they had raped her. She, but I don't think they looked at her as like a potential victim because they were kind of partying with her. She wasn't one they took up to the mountains. But yeah, but she still reported the rape. So when Bynum heard Joe Jackson saying these two guys are taking girls in a van and killing them up in the mountains he was like whoa wait a minute paul was the one who started putting the pieces together and actually took uh, jackson seriously that you know these two guys could be potential serial killers that are right under their nose but nobody has any idea
0: well, and it wasn't like there was a big mania across the city, like if you're talking about, you know, like for example, I know Son of Sam or whatever, where everybody was terrified and cops are at DEFCON 1. Were these victims even reported because they couldn't find them? Uh, was there word out on the street that there was somebody driving around killing women or was it kind of not even known?
1: What's really scary about Bittaker and Norris is they were committing such perfect homicides. Nobody had a clue. Like nobody had any clue at all. Like it was a shock when they were finally arrested and, you know, the girls were reported missing, but nobody was connecting the girls with each other. They had no idea there was two serial killers doing this and they were doing it really heavily too, as well. They were on this massive spree, but I mean, they were essentially committing almost like the perfect homicides with bringing up the girls up in the mountains. Nobody had heard anything, seen anything, no witnesses, no forensics, no DNA, nothing. So, yeah, it was a shock when Los Angeles found out, you know, these two guys had been, like, kidnapping girls in the van and bring them up to the mountains.
0: So, did they start admitting it then that they had killed these five girls?
1: Yeah. They finally confessed. It took like, a week, I would say, for them to finally get Norris to break down. They, They tried to, you know, say, like, you have nothing on me. But then, finally, they were able to break Norris down. And it was using, you know, the fear of the death penalty against him.
0: You mentioned Bynum a few times committing suicide. He's obviously one of the investigators on the case. Why did you ever find out why he committed suicide?
1: It was, you know, he wrote a, I think it's a 32 page um, suicide letter. I speak with his daughter. His daughter just came to the premiere and his son as well. You know, it was a lot of trauma from Bittaker and Norris. You know, hearing that tape, everybody had nightmares from it. I mean, it's weird. This is the first serial killing case I've ever had nightmares on, Mm. which I can't even, and I haven't heard the tape. I heard 30 seconds and I've had, crazy nightmares about this case you know so i'm sure that tape has weighed heavily heavily on him and then you know i've heard you know it's the two missing girls never being able to find you know sydney or andrea i mean that weighs on you also
0: so he felt so terrible about the whole situation yeah
1: he He had a nervous breakdown right after the trial and then he you know uh recovered um he went on to be. Leave the force, become a PI. But the main reason he actually killed himself is he was very scared Bitteker would also get out one day and would comfort his wife and daughter and kill them. So he thought by killing himself, uh, Bitteker would not come for his wife and daughter.
0: Oh, wow. Like almost sacrificing himself to save his family. Yeah. That's, wow. Yeah. That's terrible. (laughs) Jeez. So when you kind of going back to the, to your time with Bitteker and you mentioned maybe he, you broke through with him because you were pregnant, for example, Uh, whatever the reason was, what were some of the first sort of bits of information that he gave you? Where you started realizing, like, holy smokes, my fifteen hundred dollar gamble is paying off here, if you yeah. want to call
1: it that. That's a perfect analogy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he, you know, it was just so crazy because I'm sitting there and I always um, ask for a pen. And I start taking notes. I had like a sheet of notes and I said, "Just, I just want to fact check a couple things." You know, Cindy and Andrea haven't been found yet. Those are the two. Just to make sure. And he's like, "Yes." It was almost like a subconscious thing. I go. Why haven't they been found? And he he just grabs the paper and the pen out of my hand and starts drawing a map. And I'm sitting there like, the serial killer is not drawing a map right now. The serial killer is not drawing a map. Mm -hmm. Are you kidding me? And, you know, he's drawing it and he's explaining it. And I was just like, inside, I was like freaking out. You know, I'm trying to remain calm on the outside. But I was like, oh, my God. Um, Right after that visit, I went to the library and started getting every single map I could of the land to bring him back into the next day (laughs) for him to go over that's how it all started so it's about took in about like 15 months we mailed maps back and forth because we needed to get like the elevation level right um and go over all, like all the fire roads you know it's hard to get like maps of the fire roads up in san gabriel but yeah 15 months of just mailing maps back and forth to each other
0: Talk is Jericho is brought to you in part by our friends at Steven Singer Jewelers. Steven is giving every other jeweler out there another reason to hate him as if there wasn't enough reasons. Steven Singer Jewelers is the best place to go for the number one gift this holiday, diamond stud earrings. With all the shipping delays and fulfillment issues, Steven is fully stocked with the most beautiful, best value, real diamond studs anywhere. Right now, choose a great pair of Anita diamond stud earrings for under $270. Does that sound familiar? That's because that was the same price last year. Steve's not jacking up prices like everyone else. Just the perfect price every single day. No sales, no discounts, no BS. Steven's real diamond studs are flawless to the eye, near colorless, and come with his famous full-value lifetime trade-in guarantee. You can trade up your diamond studs anytime and receive exactly what you paid towards a new pair all with an unbeatable full 100-day, 100% money-back guarantee. Go now to IHateStevenSinger.com and order with fast and free shipping in time for Christmas. Steven Singer Jewelers, one place, one price. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. IHateStevenSinger.com. Did you finally take the map and go out, or how did that work? Yes.
1: There's stuff in the works right now. We are still working on to do a second search for the girls. I went up there with uh, Julie, who you see in this special, and we took a metal detector and we did get a hit in the exact spot that Bitteker gave us. And she has a, you know, the ice pick is still in her skull. So now we have something that confirms, you know, we're getting hit in the exact spot he's telling us. So, you know, we're trying to get you know, this, another search and recovery coming along. And, you know, we finally have now a piece of evidence that shows that this is legit, you know, information.
0: So when you had a hit, you mean you found the ice pick or? No,
1: we just got a hit for a medal on the pinpoint he gave on the maps.
0: So then you have to start digging or, or is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah. I mean, we're going to bring in, you know, forensic experts. No, I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. so, you're not
0: standing with a shovel, yeah. at, you know, Indiana <laughs> Jones at midnight. But So those two bodies still haven't been found. So you haven't found these two yet. Yes. But his detailed map is leading you to think that you can.
1: Yes. We've gone up and we, you know, the exact spot he's given, there's been a, a hit. So, I mean, I'm really hopeful, you know, this is, um, this is it. We've found them and we can start, you know, we're trying to get another production company to fund search if we do like a series that's like what we're working towards right now. We have two production companies interested, but you know, it's getting them the money to say, okay, go do the search. You know, they want they want to hear that you're gonna find something. And I can't guarantee that no one can guarantee that.
0: Mm, Of course.
1: (laughs) But I can tell them, you know, I'm I know this is the right location. I know he wasn't lying about the locations he gave here, we got a hit with the metal detector already. And I do believe his other victims that Bitteker had or up at this spot, this location, this Canyon as well.
0: Cause you mentioned that you feel, or or maybe it's proven that there are other victims than just the five.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Is that from information that he's given you?
1: Yeah. Um, it's directly from him. He told me there was more victims. And then when I was going through the police discovery, there was, he mentions, he says, you know, there's more than five, I think the five girls or what they got them convicted on and the rest just wasn't, you know, properly investigated. But um, I have a Jane Doe and two missing girls that I know are his already. And then, you know, with the witnesses I spoke to, you know, he would play the rape of Jackie Gilliam to the teenagers at the Scott Motel. There's a couple of witnesses at the Scott Motel who have heard another audio tape, a third audio tape that was buried of 12 different girls screaming. Twelve.
0: When they found out that the kind of the jig was up, they cleaned out most of the evidence out of the van, correct? Correct. Yeah. Except for... (laughs)
1: Except for the Ledford tape. Yeah, he had left that in the cassette player. It was the one thing. He had just ironically, it called Norris's house as the police had just came in to do a search. And the detective picked up the phone and said, you know, he's next door and his sister's fixing the antenna. So he called the sister, Norris's sister, and he goes, where's Norris? And she goes, there's cops everywhere. He hung up, he knew they were coming for him. So that's how he was able to um, go to the van, drive and bury everything pretty much.
0: All of the tools and whatever it may be.
1: Yeah. it was he buried the audio, all the other audio tapes, photographs, photographs, the jewelry of the victims he had. I mean, just did an entire sweep of everything and buried it.
0: But he left the Ledford tape, and of course, this is the horrific audio tape in the cassette player, which would insinuate that he was driving around like you and I would be listening to ACDC or whatever. <laughs> He's listening to this terrible tape of this poor woman
1: yeah this is something that came from Stephen k uh he said that uh Bitteker would drive around and masturbate while listening to it oh my gosh
0: how does someone get so warped i, I know mean, it, it, i mean this is your kind of field of expertise is there a certain pattern to these people's lives or is it just something rotten in your brain
1: well no you know with bitiker this is i've never seen an extreme level like him before i don't think i'll ever encounter somebody at his level of sadism again. I'd be surprised if I ever did. But I think also that's what's kind of fascinated me about Bitteker like, I've never seen something of like this level of sadism or depravity in my, and I've interviewed serial killers. <laughs> you know, I've interviewed over 50. Yet with Bitteker, he was like a different beast. It was like near demonic, some of the stuff. You know, I was just so intrigued by how someone could get to that level of depravity.
0: So let me ask you this. You've interviewed over 50 Syracuse, and I'm sure you could probably be on this show another 50 times if that's <laughs> the case, but what is it that made him different? What traits, What the mindset?
1: Well, you know, with him, it was like, I mean, when I say there was like no feeling, no remorse, no nothing, like nothing total psychopath. I mean, that was Bittiger where with other ones, I don't see like to that level, like there's still uh, some emotion or some type of experience they're having where with bitaker there was absolutely none. And then with the sadism is you'll see with a lot of serial killers, they'll go after, you know, prostitutes and they'll strangle them. You're not seeing, you know, them ripping out bowlers and nipples and the clitoris with, you know, pliers and, <sighs> you know, sodomizing them with spur drivers and putting ice picks in their breasts and their ears. You don't see that with typical serial killers. I mean, sure. They might do some sadistic things and they might, Kill people, but it's never to that level, and it's never, you know, good girls from you know the South Bay who are walking home from church are just taken away and just tortured beyond belief. Not only that, is like not a lot of the serial killers, you know, recorded. You know, Bittaker Norris recorded everything; they photographed everything. They wanted to relive it. So, you know, this is the darkest, most sadistic case in American history. I mean, yes, yeah, so I don't see that level of depravity with the other ones. I mean. I'll still even see some remorse with the other serial killers and, you know, and I'll never see that type of torture. I mean, if there's some, there might be some with other cases, but not nothing to this extreme that I've ever seen. Mm. So yeah, with uh Bideker and Norris, it was just like a whole other level. I mean, literally this like almost a horror movie come to life like beyond
0: beyond yeah yeah as we start to wind down here how is it for you when this is your job and you mentioned you know you know you have to get close into it but it also affects you to where you had nightmares about this case is it hard sometimes to leave your work at work and come home and hang out with your family I mean how does that affect you
1: It was really hard in the beginning to do that because, you know, your cases especially become like such a part of your life. And then my phone's always ringing off the hook from inmates from San Quentin or wherever. And I'm a workaholic too. So, you know, I'm always constantly working, but, you know, now, you know, I have some really, really amazing friends and, you know, when I'm hanging out with them, I'm just laughing, you know, nonstop. And we're just, you know, talking. So, you know, my friends um, keep me really grounded (laughs) with everything.
0: Going back to and, and and when he was finally apprehended and caught, You mentioned that Norris kind of whatever he did to to not get the death penalty. Bitteker did get the death penalty, correct? He did, yes. So why was he still alive 35 years later?
1: So he actually beat the death penalty. How? It's kind of really wild. Um, I've never seen anything like this with his 138 IQ, he would go to the library and he he learned the law like the back of his hand. Um, so he would file appeals. If you there's a Reader's Digest article about him actually suing the system over giving him a broken cookie. It was against his civil rights. That's a real article. I'll send it to you. Wow. But also he he filed. I think it was yeah 1990. He filed a habeas corpus. Now once an inmate has filed anything within the court system. It's a stay of execution. You cannot execute an inmate if there's anything filed within the court system. For some reason, this habeas corpus that was filed in 1990 had absolutely no movement on it up until 2019 until he died and and then it's just gone. But yeah, he literally had a 30-year habeas corpus filed, which is unheard of.
0: And habeas corpus to the layman is
1: you know, I don't even really understand it. It's all, it's part of the appeal process that they go through. When someone's convicted of a first degree murder charge, everybody's um, has a right to an appeal. There's, it takes years and years and years. I mean, this is where it gets all law and stuff like that. They could probably tell you more than I can, but yeah, it's um, one of those things where, yeah, it was just filed through the systems and it stayed for 30 years. And when I called Stephen so Steve is the DA. I said, why is it 30 years? Is this normal? He's like, he's like, I've never seen a 30-year habeas corpus file, like a just a stay on an appeal like this.
0: So it was like some kind of a loophole, like some glitch in the system?
1: I think, yeah. So he won a lot of lawsuits too, like when he was suing the prison for different things. He actually was winning them too. Yeah, so he just learned the law and was just using it to like screw with ca- the state of California <laughs> pretty much. God. Yeah.
0: It amazes me once again, you know, for a lot of these cases, how they're able to just weasel their way out over and over and over again.
1: It's, yeah, it's incredible. It blows my mind. <laughs>
0: you know, it's, it's, it's kind of sad, especially, you know, th- victims are killed. They had never had a choice. And this dude has a habeas corpus for 30 years and dies of cancer at almost 80 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Last few things. So when you when you got involved with, with the Toolbox Killers for Peacock, were you producing it? Did they ask you to come on board as kind of a talking head?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm one of the executive producers for the show. Gotcha. So every witness you see on the show, I track down. Because, you know, I'm also investigating the case. I'm writing the book. Uh, the book is What Hell is Like, the Untold Story of the Toolbox Killers. So, you know, I was tracking everybody down already from the book. So when I got approached from the production company about doing a show, you know, I already had everybody tracked down and ready to go. And, but that's actually how they had found me as they heard about, you know, the missing bodies had been, you know, he'd finally started talking and they had called Stephen K and Stephen said, you've got to talk to Laura, you know, if she's just uncovered all this information. So that's how it like blossomed into a show. Mm-hmm. Bitteker was alive during this time actually too. And, um, I had to convince him to do it. He didn't want to do anything publicity wise either, just like Norris. He didn't want anything being brought to light. So I had to really talk them into, uh, willing to do the show and the book too. And
0: what's kind of the overall mission for this show for you? What do you want people to get out of it or just to know about it or
1: yeah, well, you know, I wanted to create a game changer within the true crime genre. You know, a lot of things are sensationalized. Where with this documentary, it's more like humanity and homicide coexist together. You know, there's um, a lot of different deep layers in it, and it's you know, it takes away the black and the white, and you're kind of you feel almost for the killer and the victim. You're kind of just having an emotional experience, a roller coaster, and that's actually what I really wanted. Like I said, to bring humanity and homicide to coexist and stop sensationalizing these crimes, but show the real element. The real true nature of everything. And that's what I hope to do for the next project, too. You know, when we do the searches, you know, just bring some more light to darkness, pretty much.
0: I think awareness is so important, too. Like you mentioned, and once again, having teenage daughters and a son as well, just what you said about, about how they were stalking the 13 year old girl to where waiting to where her dad wasn't home or whatever it was. Yeah. Even though this was 40 years ago, it still makes you, reminds you that there are animals out there and you could never let your guard down ever.
1: It's true. Yeah. You know, there are predators and, you know, especially for young girls like your daughters and it's good to teach them to be aware and, you know, vigilant because you never know. You could be in a parking garage or walking in a park anywhere, you know, and you have no idea who could be, you know, snapping your picture or watching you and your habits.
0: Last question for you, Laura. What is your overall taking, like you mentioned, take the crimes out of the equation. What are your overall thoughts and impressions of Lawrence Bitteker, uh from your experiences with him?
1: From my experiences, you know, he was uh, incredibly smart. He did have a witty side to him, very witty side to him. I mean, those are probably the only two good things I'm to think of anything else from him. At the end there, you know, I got to see, you know, being in there with those last interviews and he's crying and really starting to show remorse. I mean, that was a profound experience for me to have with him and to have a serial killer, you know, on their deathbed and to be able to experience that with them. Uh, it was really profound to see. It's almost like watching a transformation Mm -hmm. in that cage that day. So I would say, you know, the experiences and the lessons he's taught me, you know, for going on with forensic psychology in this type of field, I mean, are unequivocal with everything.
0: And you did something that nobody else could do, which is get that information from him as a result.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: You are a real life Clarice Starling. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs)
0: Well, Laura, it's been amazing talking to you. And like I said, this is something that very riveting in many different ways. So, um, Great work. And hopefully we find those missing girls.
1: Yes. Keep praying.
0: Yes. Thank you so much.
1: Of course. Thank you, guys. Thank you.